Our text this morning is Philippians 1, verses 19 through 21. Let me read those to you. Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The thing that really makes me marvel uh, the most about this little book is Paul's attitude in the given situation that he found himself. I mean, his, his demeanor in the face of persecution and death. Because I'm just blown away at his level of calm and his confidence at this point in his life as I step back and kind of think about what was going on and, and how he responded to that. Because other than being in prison, other than looking forward to execution at the hands of the Caesar, other than the spiritual and emotional weight of the various churches he was involved with, other than his physical ailments and the various groups of people who were slandering him, the Judaizers and such, other than the fact that at different points his friends would abandon him, other than all those things that we read about from his letters or from the book of Acts, he was also left wondering what exactly was going to happen next in his life. That's an interesting point about this book for me is that he kept saying, he keeps saying over and over again, I don't really know what's going to happen, but, and then he gives us principles about the spiritual life. Continually we find joy in his speech. We continually find that confidence and that consistency and that satisfaction in Jesus Christ that we all would desire. And of course, right, he's the Apostle Paul, you know, and, and that's kind of a given for us. I think we sort of elevate him to the status of mutant Christian. He's a platinum disciple. He's management material, right? Um, but this is the guy that throughout this letter and all of his writings says, hey, this is the Christian life. What you're seeing in me is the Christian life. This is who you are. This is the same guy who said, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, each of us are going to have a different scope uh, of ministry as the Lord divvies out assignments to us as his servants. Some are given a larger scope of ministry than others from the human perspective. But whether you're an ambassador to the United States or an ambassador to the tiny island of Malta, the job is the same. The purpose is the same. The position is the same. And so when we compare our lives and our thinking to what we see from the Apostle Paul, the hope is that we would find confidence in Christ within ourselves, that we would find an abandon to his will within ourselves as well. Our hope would be that we could say that, hey, we are imitating Paul as he imitated Christ. What it comes down to is our, is our answer to a very important question. And the question is this, my life is all about what? What is my life about? The Philippians were worried about Paul. They knew what was going on. Uh, they knew what he was facing. They knew the struggles and the discouragements that he had in his life, and it concerned them. They were worried about it. But in this letter, Paul answered all of their questions and all of their concerns and all of their worries with a simple and famous phrase, For me to live is Christ. On a casual reading, I might think, well, yeah, yeah, Paul, I, I'm a Christian too, but what about this or what about that? And Paul comes back and he says, no, no, you don't understand. This is it. This is the end all. There isn't anything else. My life is not about business. My life is not about power. It's not about money. It's not about pleasure. It's not about any of those things. My life is Christ. What he says, what he wants, what he does, that's it, and nothing else comes in front of that. And because of that mindset, God was not only able to use Paul to save people from hell, but this man could also stare any situation in the face without 
fear, with this confidence and this satisfaction and this joy that we see in him so often. And so how do we get there? Let's try to unlock some of this from these verses. First, he writes in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we need to grab onto the fact that our lives as Christians have to be fueled by the Holy Spirit. They have to be. It's not a... Uh, uh, that's not a conditional thing. It, it has to be fueled by the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul points this out, and he says that his deliverance, his salvation, was going to be by the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. As Christians, life cannot be lived effectively without the continual filling and guiding and supply of the Holy Spirit. It just can't. That's, that's the bottom line. And we, of course, try to do it all the time. Because as fallen individuals, at least I know in my life, we're schemers, we're individualists, we're, we're proud. And in our natural flesh, you know, we try to do things on our own. And the flesh doesn't want us to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It wants to control us ourselves. But like we saw in the study of David on Sunday morning, when we leave the presence of the Spirit, we immediately are going to encounter defeat in our lives. That may sound a little bit sensational, but that, that's the truth. That's what we find when we look into the Scriptures. When we start to realize that as Christians, everything hinges on God's provision in our lives, uh, then we couldn't possibly overstate the need for, that we have for the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day life. Because your marriage is contingent on the filling of the Holy Spirit. Your decision-making as a parent is contingent on the Holy Spirit. Your job and your plans and your future, it's all in the hands of God because now you belong to God as a Christian. And if we want to receive the fullness and the goodness that God has planned for us, then we have to be willing to submit to the Spirit and to take His supply and not go it our own way. That is the source of deliverance and salvation, that and nowhere else. The Spirit is the fuel that we require, and uh, that is the thing that we need if we desire progress in our lives. And remember what we've read so far in this chapter. God wants us to get grace and peace and effectiveness. He set up all these situations around us so that He could bring us to where we are and use us to further His work. He wants us to succeed. He's not trying to hide spiritual growth from us. But we tend, as human beings, to get fearful. Even worse than that, we tend to get complacent from time to time. And then we start to lay down on the job as Christians. We start lowering our standards as Christians. We stop believing how important the gospel is. And that doesn't just affect our testimony and our evangelism, but it affects every other part of life as well. Because when we become fearful or when we become complacent, uh, now we're empty of that peace that we need for decision making. We're worried about the future. We're living in relationships that demand grace and love, but we're not receiving our supply of grace and love from the Spirit because we forget to go and fuel up with Him. So first and foremost, we have to stay in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper for the church age. Uh, I don't know if you know this is news to anybody, but Jesus Christ is no longer hitchhiking around Galilee, interacting with human beings in that way. However, when he left, he sent us the Holy Spirit as our helper to help us and to indwell every single believer on the earth. And so we have to trust that God is a worthy pilot for our lives, and we must trust that his navigation is sure and true. And so how do we stay in tune with the Holy Spirit? Paul gives us one way right here, prayer. While we must first trust the Lord and His Spirit and His influence in our lives, we second must communicate with the Lord through prayer. 
Paul affirms here that prayer is not a soulless ritual, but it is in fact a powerful conduit by which we submit ourselves to God. It is the way that we discover his will and receive his filling. And Paul points out that your prayers not only draw you closer to God, it not only gets you in line with his will, but it also can influence situations in the lives of others. We see that in verse 19. And I think we believe this principle. We believe in the power of prayer, maybe you know, as far as our head knowledge goes. But I know that we fail to pray this way, at least I do. I fail many times to pray this way. When prayer becomes soulless and when it becomes impersonal, when it becomes ritualistic, then it's like, you know, when we or maybe we see on a sitcom when when a husband is talking to the wife while reading the newspaper. The wife is talking and the husband's behind his paper and, you know, there's a few words of response from the husband, but no real conversation. He's not really listening. He's not really talking. There's no real interaction. And if we pray that way to the Lord, then our communication with Christ and the Father and the Spirit is going to break down very quickly. And when our communication with God breaks down, then we are going to be missing out on that refilling that he wants to do in our lives. And then we're going to start losing our trust and our confidence in him, which we desire and require for day-to-day living. Look at verse 20. Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Because Paul knew Jesus, because he trusted him, because he received that continual supply from the Holy Spirit and was in communication with the Lord, he was able to have an excitement about the things that were going on in his life. Now, I don't suppose he enjoyed all the things that happened in his life, you know, many of these aspects, the stonings, the beatings, the discouragements. But because he had surrendered his life to Christ and was on assignment for him, he was able to know that each new day that the Lord was bringing him a new experience that God had laid before him to live in. He knew that Christ had been unleashed in his life and he was excited about the fact that every day as a servant brought him closer to payday, brought him closer to that moment when he would stand before the master complete and finished. But as usual, the Christian life cannot be lived on autopilot. He says in verse 20, in nothing I shall be ashamed. Remember, Paul's life was Jesus. That's what he says at the end of this passage. To live is Christ. Like us, his assignment was to magnify the Lord no matter what happened around him. So while he was living life, Paul was careful not to be shamed by disqualifying himself as an ambassador or servant for Jesus. This is something he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's in verse 27. He says, But I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. This is an important principle because Paul understood that a Christian must stay within the boundaries and the guidelines that God has revealed to us so that we can magnify the Lord and not be ashamed by bringing a reproach or a blemish on his name. You know, it's one thing to be a Christian and then it's one thing to act like a Christian. And this is something we talk about a lot. There's one thing to be a Christian and to believe in Jesus. There's another thing to be a disciple and follow after Jesus and to become his servant. It's like this. It's like if a boxer spent weeks and months training and getting ready for the big fight only to get to fight night and get to the weigh-in and realize that he hadn't paid any attention to his weight and now he's not in the correct class anymore. Well, he's not going to be able to fight, is he? He's disqualified because he hadn't disciplined himself to stay in his weight class. 
And so a desire to serve God is key. If we, you know, a desire to be in the fight out there is key. But if we can't bring that desire under discipline, then we are going to find that much of our work is going to be disqualified. Much of our preaching is going to be disqualified. And we're going to bring a blemish and a reproach on the name of Jesus. In this passage, our text concludes with the famous words, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death cannot be an advantage for a person unless Christ is your life. Certainly, if a person does not know the Lord, death becomes the ultimate defeat and the ultimate fear. There is no recovery when a lost individual enters into eternity. And we understand that. But even as Christians, we need to think about death. And we need to think about if death is going to be an advantage for us, as it were. All of us as Christians are secure in our salvation. The Bible does not teach that you can lose your salvation. But as we think about that moment when we leave this life and enter into eternity, we must ask ourselves the questions of, will the day of our death be a day of regret as we stand before the Lord? When we're before Jesus Christ, are these days that we're living on earth going to last? Have they made a difference for the kingdom? Is there any reward you know, being stored up, any treasure that we're laying up in heaven? Or did we live for something other than Jesus Christ here on the earth? And again, the bottom line question is, my life is about what? What is my life about? If we cannot fill that question with the answer that Paul gave, then we cannot attain the fullness of the prize that Jesus wants us to win as his people. Again, we're all saved. Everybody's going to make it into heaven. But I know that I, for one, don't want to be a Christian that is saved as through fire. And I know nobody in here wants that as well. And so these are questions that we have to pose ourselves day by day What am I doing? What is my life about today? And does it have eternal merit? Because this is an issue we have to put to ourselves. It's easy to brush this this off into my own mind and say, well, you know, of course, my life's about Jesus. But I know I need to truly take time to question my life. And we all need to take time regularly to evaluate ourselves and to question ourselves and to see if we are really living for Jesus Christ as the focus. Can I see that desire demonstrated in my day-to-day life? Am I bringing myself under discipline in the Spirit and the disciplines of the Scriptures? If we want life to be Christ then we must first trust that the Lord wants to accomplish the extraordinary things that he's promised us in his word. We must, by faith, take his word for it, as it were, that his plan is to fill our lives, to bless our marriages, to empower our activity, all those things we read about. You know, we look in the Bible and we say, well, this is what God wants to do in the lives of his Christians. Okay, well, do I really believe that? Am I taking God's word for it? Do I have faith in the fact that God cares about my marriage? He cares about my kids. He cares about my job. He cares about where I live. He cares about what I do. First, we have to trust in those things. Then, second, we must communicate with the Lord. We must discover who God is and what he wants for us as individuals from his word and from prayer. We must converse with him in real personal prayer. Not a ritual, not an obligation, not an afterthought, but real prayer where we lay ourselves before God and concede ourselves to him. Where we truly receive spiritual filling for our thirst and our supply and and for the difficulties in, in life. And then we must understand that our lives are a partnership with Jesus Christ. He wants us to get the prize. He does. He wants us to have confidence in the joy and the expectation that we see here in the Apostle Paul. He wants those things. Those characteristics are not reserved for a few mutant Christians. There is no such thing as a mutant Christian. Those things, those characteristics and these great things that we see in the Apostle Paul are offered to every Christian who is willing to accept the call. 
It's offered to any Christian who is willing to say, okay, you want me to go over here? Let's go. You want me to say this? Let's talk. You want me to make this decision? Let's do it. And along the way, we are to stay disciplined and focused so that we're not doing anything that disqualifies us or brings a shame on the name of Jesus. We stay trained for the opposition that comes against us so that no one will rob us of the peace or the joy that the Lord gives us. We stay disciplined so that we don't get knocked off course by some temptation or sin. We stay in those boundaries and in that will of God so that God can accomplish all of these wonderful things in and through us. If we are willing to understand who we really are as Christians, every Christian, and then pair that understanding with actual submission to Jesus, then we will find that the purpose and the help and the endurance that we all need in life is supplied by Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. That's what I need. That's what you need. And the good news is that's what God wants for each of us as well. That you would become an active believer who magnifies God moment by moment and day by day. That we all bring hope to those around us and that we fear nothing in this life. Amen? Amen. All right.